Amen. Thank you, Pastor Fern. Good job. Pastor Foster. I haven't been called Pastor Foster so many times in three seconds in a long time. <laughs> We're really excited to be here this morning, my wife and I and some of my family. It is great whenever we have the opportunity to come to the East Campus. Uh, we love what God's doing here. We hear reports from Doug, uh, Pastor Fern, uh, time and time again. And uh, it's so cool at staff meetings when we just get to hear how the Lord is moving here. And of course, I get to meet with Renee Pickard and she and our children's staff team as uh, she kind of leads us through the uh, things that are going on here. So uh, well aware of the Faith Academy program on Friday and man, just so many great things are happening on this campus. And I have an authentic pulpit this morning. I am excited, which Doug informed me actually came from Central Campus. So this is my pulpit anyway. All right. <laughs> All the other tall Johns use the big Jeff Gilmore pulpit, but this is mine. So anyway, uh, yeah, we are glad. We're heading up to uh, Madison, Wisconsin on Tuesday uh, because my oldest daughter, Rachel, who used to teach at Faith Academy, is going to be induced with her baby on Thursday. So she's going to the hospital on Wednesday, hopefully have the child on Thursday. And a lot of you have been asking, I think they're going to name it uh, David David Cronin. Uh, <laughs> Going with the theory that you can't have too much of a good thing. So, now, actually, they're going to name it Edmund Michael, Mr. Mike Cronin, sitting right there, uh, gets his namesake, since I already have one of my own. So, we're excited about that. I don't know what Christmas will be like with us going back and forth to the hospital or how long this ordeal is going to take, but uh, you could pray for all of us that uh, we would have a great time. So, we're, going to, we're just going to do what we can do on that day, and I pray that the rest of us who are traveling, I've talked to several of you this morning that are uh, going to different places, that we all have a great time in the Lord. And we're going to focus this morning on the light. John, uh, in the first chapter here, really makes us a big emphasis. Uh, Doug led us last week through a study of the use of the word light, the imagery of light, the metaphor of light, the true essence of who Jesus Christ is, is actually light. Now I'm old enough that as I think about light and what it takes to create light, for most of us it's true that almost universally light is a product of electricity, right? At least you need electricity in order to energize whatever is going to be that lighted element. Um, but I remember uh, going to places where that always wasn't true. When my uh, Mom and my brother and I would go to Christmas every year up in northern central Iowa to Eagle Grove. We would leave from Omaha, we would drive to Missouri Valley, and then we would go through a series of little towns. Uh, Logan, uh, what was one there, Dunlap, uh, Woodbine, and so forth. I think Woodbine was before Dunlap. But our highlight of our trip, we'd always go, we'd have uh, breakfast at the Copper Kettle in Missouri Valley, if you can remember those places. And then uh, we go by Logan, and on the outskirts of Logan was an old motel, and it had a big neon sign, and it said the Logan Motel in a cursive sideways right, and then below it, in block letters, it said, hot water, heat, hot water, heat, and we were like, cool. And so... Uh, <laughs> My brother and I were always joking with my mom. For graduation, when we get old enough in high school, can, can we just spend a night at the Logan Motel and have hot water and heat? That would be so exciting. When I moved out to western Nebraska after seminary to pastor, uh, parts of that place were really, you know, 
we were rural, rural. I mean, it was an hour and a half drive to the closest Walmart. Uh, we had one doctor there. All three of our girls had to be born in Norfolk, which was an hour and a half drive away. Um, so it was kind of, but I do remember the people telling us that they can remember when REA came through, the Rural Electric Cooperative, and uh, they, can, they said before then, we didn't have any electricity. And then all of a sudden there was that cord that came in off the pole into the house and dad hooked a wire to it and we had a single bulb hanging in the room and we could actually play an old radio off of it and their lives changed dramatically. We take the concept of light for granted in so many ways because we live in a power-hungry culture, right? Everything that we do is functioning by light. But it wasn't the case in the day of John and for most of human history. Uh, light was a powerful, powerful thing. Most of our lives uh, revolved around the rising and the setting of the sun. Without that, we were in darkness. In fact, the universe, kind of its natural condition, is darkness, right? If you go outside of the Earth's atmosphere, the universe itself is dark, except for those stars. Uh, the book of creation, Genesis, it tells us that God created two lights, the sun and the moon, and it was specifically with the purpose of creating an atmosphere by which Adam and Eve could do their jobs. I think often of this, uh, especially when I'm sitting in my office at Parkview. I'm in an inner office. There are no windows. I have one door, and it goes to a hallway that is quite removed from any windows. And if it wasn't for light, I would be in dark. I mean, it just... It's kind of eerie. People will often walk in and say, man, you don't have any natural lighting in here at all. Now, I've been in there for 14 years. My eyes have grown huge because of that. I, I'm kind of weird for that reason. But it's just the way it is. My mom worked in the Dodge building in downtown Omaha for the phone company. And if you go by there, you know, like a lot of phone company buildings, there are no windows. It's just a tall building, 19 stories. Up on top is a huge array of antennas like they used to build for the old phone companies. But you could go floor after floor with hundreds of people working and there were no windows, no light. That was natural. We take it for granted, don't we? It's just so easy to come into our living room, our bedroom, and flip on a light. We turn on the TV, which is light, right? Uh, we have flashlights. We have headlights on our cars. Light is everywhere. It's a powerful, powerful thing, and yet it's something that we've become so used to that we really don't think about it anymore. When you think about people used to read by the light of a fire or a candle or an oil lamp, when you think about in those old movies, people grabbing a torch off the wall and they would light it up. They never really told you what those torches were made of, but they would go down an old Gothic castle hallway and the whole place would light up, just like if they had turned a switch on. But if you've ever used a torch, if you've ever been in a room that was lit only by firelight, you realize that is not the way it is. You know, light has a circumference, an area that is darkness, that is just to the edge of light. And wherever you go with that light, the light travels with you. The, light, the darkness closes in behind where the light no longer is. When I was a kid, uh, my brother and I, we watched way too many horror movies. And uh, we were always watching horror movies, and we were always, at least I was, reading books that were designed to scare you. 
So I grew a very unhealthy fear of the dark. In fact, uh, I insisted in our bedroom, we had two twin beds that my brother and I changed beds so I could have that hallway light. I, I was probably seven or eight and I just did not want sleep. But in my mind as a kid, if my hand went off the edge of my bed and now this part of my hand was in darkness, that was wrong. That was evil. There was stuff that happened out there that I couldn't see. It seemed like I could hear it, but I couldn't see anything. And then you'd draw it back in, right? I'm going up to Cub Scouts my first year when I was eight. In Omaha, it was a two-block walk up a hill, and in the wintertime, it was always dark. And I remember running from street lamp to street lamp to street lamp because the werewolf or something was back over there in the bushes, right? And so when I finally saw the glowing porch light on our uh, Cub Master's house, that was a sign of refuge, a place to go to retreat. On the way home, I didn't bother with the street lamps, I just booked it, because it was downhill, and I went as fast as I could to get back to the light. Light has so much power, so much imagery. So as Doug, I'm sure, did an excellent job last week, he talked about the power of light. Jesus is light. So what I'm looking at in my verses for today, starting in verse 9, picking right up with where Doug was last week, it says, the true light which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. Think about it for a second. We have flashlights. But what if the natural state of the world was light rather than darkness? What if wherever you went where there wasn't darkness, there was always light? Would we have flash darks? You know, something that could penetrate uh, the light, you know, wherever it wasn't? Who knows, you know? But it is the way it is, the way God created it, Light dispels darkness. Light is the master of darkness. We crave light. We have to have it. And it, we're told in the word of God that Jesus is that true light. Now, John is going to develop an argument this morning throughout the few verses that I have to go through that this true light has power. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. Now, this isn't referencing the idea that possibly everyone that has been alive during the time of Christ was enlightened by this light. There's something that has to happen, and he's going to explain that in a little bit. But just because Jesus is the true light doesn't mean that you don't have to interact with him to get that light. If you want to have spiritual light, you have to do something, and John's going to explain that to us in a second here. It's kind of like the old uh, church father Augustine said, just because a village has a teacher doesn't mean that everyone is educated. You have to put yourself in a position to be taught by that teacher in order for you to benefit from that teacher. So that Jesus is the true light who enlightens everyone means if you take advantage of that light, you have to do something with that light. You can't just be a static condition. I have to do something. So Jesus is the light, continues on in verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Strong statement there. Jesus is the creator. He says he was in the world, and the world was made through him. It's interesting that John would say that. Jesus came on that first Christmas. The incarnation happens. And the world received him, but the world rejected him. I don't know what you've made in your life, 
what you would say if I were to ask you, what's the greatest creation that you've ever created? What thing have you made or something that you've set in motion and you had ownership over and you took great pride in that? And then to have somehow that object, that event, that thing reject you. That's what Jesus is facing here. John says he's the true light. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So John is going to do a limiting factor here. We're starting off with the whole world, the whole creation. We're told many places in scripture that Jesus was the creator. God was the creator. The church father Irenaeus tells us that he is a creator, the creator. And thus this world should know who Jesus is. The creation knew his Lord, but the people, even though they didn't know him or knew him, they did rejected him. They did not know him. The word know here in the Greek has more than just an idea of an intellectual uh, denial. It's a flat refusal to acknowledge or go in the direction of something that it knows. <clears throat> It'd be like your own child telling you no, not just like a two-year-old, but more like a grown adult saying, I don't care who you are, what you stand for, I absolutely flatly deny you. And this is a strong statement. And so Jesus said, I came into the world and you did not know me. And then he goes on to say, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Who are the people that he's talking about? Well, of course, the nation Israel. And we see this throughout scripture, but there are some strong statements here that are, that are made that Jesus, or excuse me, that the word says that there's evil in the land that God sent forth his people, his servants, that he called prophets to proclaim the truth, and the people rejected the prophets. They wanted nothing to do with that. Isaiah says the same thing. In fact, the Gospel of John, as it progresses, is going to go through seven different signs, seven different signs that Jesus is the Messiah. And these were signs specifically designed for his people Israel, so they would understand that he was the Messiah. He was the long-awaited one. He was the one that they had prayed for and hoped for and gone to war for and had been persecuted for. This Messiah was here. And just in case you have trouble believing it, let me show you seven signs. So as you look at John's Gospels, chapters 1 through 12, you see an ascending arc of demonstration of Jesus' power, beginning with turning the, wine, uh, turning the water into wine at Cana in chapter 2. Uh, bouncing along, he goes on to uh, heal uh, people in chapter 4. He feeds the 5,000. He walks on water in chapter 6. Uh, he, he heals a blind man. Um, you know, and just step by step by step, he takes us through that, culminating with the healing of Lazarus and bringing him forth from the dead. In each instance, you have the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, trying to measure whether this man could possibly be who he said he was. Are you the Messiah? And he says every time, both in words, yes I am, but also in action, let me show you. I'm going to do something that no one else has ever done before. I can actually give sight back to this blind man, right? I can actually uh, take a man who is paralyzed at the pool of Bethesda and bring him up, even if he doesn't want to believe in me right, and strengthen his limbs. 
I can do it. I can walk on water, which no one else can do. I can take a few loaves of fishes and bread, and I'm going to feed a huge multitude of people. And if that's not enough, I'm going to bring my friend, my good friend Lazarus, back from the pit, from death. And you're going to see him with your own eyes walk out. It's at that time you start reading in scripture that the Jewish authorities are convinced they can no longer ignore this man who seems to be taking all of their momentum, all of their authority, directing it away from them to Jesus of Nazareth. How could this be? We can't take this young peasant and let him do this. And so they determine at that point, we are going to kill him. And you see then, when you get to John chapter 12, and I'll turn there real quick, because that is a really prime verse in what we're reading today. Get there, verse 37, I believe. So we've had through chapters 1 through 11, miracle after miracle after miracle, in this constant arcing um, conflict with the Jewish authorities. And finally, we're going to get to the point where this climaxes, and Jesus says, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them, though he had done so many signs before them. And this is the crucial section of this verse. They still did not believe in him. It's done. I'm, I give up. I'm, there's no more signs coming. I'm not going to do anything else to prove myself to you. Uh, that's such a poignant verse. Uh, all of you should have that underlined in your scriptures. They, the Jewish leaders, the Jewish people, still, it gives the idea of a sort of a perfect uh, tense. Uh, something started at a point of time, running on. They did not, and again, it's a double negative, believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet, and so here John's going to quote Isaiah, might be fulfilled. And here's what Isaiah says. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, the answer to that would be my people Israel. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, the authority, some authorities believed in him because they feared the Pharisees. And then this last verse here, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You don't want to be on this side of the equation. You don't want to hear that coming from Jesus' mouth. Foster, I'm done. You still do not believe me. I'm done. So you have the word for no. He, they do not know him. They reject him, willfully put him aside. And then we're going to contrast that in the next verse with the word believe, faith, um, how to believe so that some could believe. And in this side, the rejection, you have the people that he came to save, the ones that he would cry over on the outskirts of Jerusalem, how he would have loved to gather them together, right? And done for them what they needed done. But they reject him. 
John's going back to this. Now, John's writing this because this is the prologue to the whole gospel, these few verses that we've been reading last week and this week. Jesus is the word. In the beginning was the word. Jesus is the light. He brings the light. He is the true light. And the world should have received that. The world should have gotten joyous over that. What's the darkest you've ever been? How much darkness can you tolerate? It's one thing to be in physical darkness. Like you take a tour in a cave, you know, they always have you hold your hand up in front of your face and you absolutely cannot see. That was the state of the world before Jesus came. But what about emotional darkness? What about spiritual darkness? When you have no hope, when you think that everything in your life has amounted to nothing. I've walked with people who have been through some horrible, horrible events in their life. Uh, it's hit them in sequential form. They've got cancer, they've lost a child, uh, their business has collapsed, they're in financial ruin, There's, their, their marriage has fallen apart, they're divorced, whatever it is. And they soon talk themselves into the fact that it's so dark, they can't find the light. Jesus says, I'm the true light, but if you reject me, what's your only alternative? What's your other choice? Think about, it. is there anything out there besides light that does what light does? No, it's just darkness. It's just darkness. When I was uh, a young guy, a lot of you know this story, I got hit in my right eye with a uh, rubber-tipped arrow. Uh, it was an accident playing with my best friend, also named Dave. See, it's a great name, Mike. I don't know why you're rejecting it. Anyway, uh, it, it immediately uh, caused the optic nerve behind there to just split open, and I lost sight in my eye. Um, but the part I wasn't expecting or thought was kind of surprising was they were worried about a condition, which some of you may know of, called sympathetic blindness. And with sympathetic blindness, if you lose sight in an eye, uh, I'm not sure what the physiological process is, there's a high risk of losing sight in your good eye. And so for... I don't know, it was probably six months, I had to wear a patch, big egg cup, over this side of my face uh, so that I wouldn't use that eye. They wanted to relax the eye. So I was in darkness, kind of, uh, at nighttime, definitely. But in the daytime, I learned pretty cleverly how to look out of the corners, you know, and I even tried to watch TV this way for a while. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's kind of a scary thing. Fast forward 30-some years, you know, I uh, have the one good eye. Um, I get retinal problems. It's like a window shade goes down and, you know, half of your vision is gone, just like it's not there anymore. You go in, you have that surgery. A few earlier years later, you go back in. The point is that I was facing darkness. Uh, the doctor told me, your, your vision's probably going to degenerate little by little over the years. Um, and I asked him why. And he said, well... Tell me about your life. So I started talking to him about it. And there was a case where, as kids, we were dropped off at a babysitter's house. And as soon as my mom left, she turned all the lights off and went back to bed. And my brother and I sat on her couch. And we had one light coming off her front porch through the window. And it just kind of barely shone. But we weren't allowed to read her books. So me being me, I went over and grabbed one of her world book encyclopedias. And I would read every morning by that light. And he says what that does is gradually stretch your eyeball from being a basketball into a football, and you have these uh, tissues that begin to bing, 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 like 
piano strings that have been too tightly wound, and you begin to lose it. And you get darkness. Darkness was a reality. And for a while there, I was very fearful of that. Because as a pastor, if I can't read, what can I do? How do I study? But one thing God taught me is that even in the darkness, he can be there. And that's really the Christmas message of this whole sermon. Even in the darkness, God is there for now. He came to the world. The world did not know him. He came to his people, the people of Israel. They rejected him. Seven signs he gave them to show that he was the Messiah. And it's not just that they didn't see him as Jesus, but they refused to believe that this man was truly the son of God. I know a lot of people out there who will tell me, oh, I believe in Jesus, right? I know who he is. He's a good man. He's a great teacher. He's an ethical person. I have nothing against him. People from other religions will say, yeah, Jesus was a great man. He was a great prophet. But was he God? No. And Jesus makes this the crossing line, all right? You either believe in me totally, light, or you don't, darkness. Light, you believe in me. You get the benefit of who I am. I am the true light. I am the true bread. I'm the true vine. Or you don't, darkness, starvation, no belonging, no identity, except you, except for me. And that's not what he wants for us. He came to his own and his people did not receive him. But it continues on in verses 12 through 13. And these are the climactic verses of this uh, prologue of John's. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. I, I just love these verses. My wife and I were talking yesterday because we were visiting some family uh, to a family member that obviously doesn't know who Jesus is. Incredibly educated and brilliant person. Uh, but denying that Jesus is God himself. And you read this and you think, well, how does that process happen? And it's verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. There is that word of faith. The, the word in the original is pistuo. You have gnosko, the I, I choose not to know him, I reject him. Contrast that with those who believed, those who had faith. It takes a step of faith. In other words, it's not enough to be born. You can't just exist. It's not enough to be good. You can't measure whether or not you're acceptable to God by your standards, it's a matter of belief. You have to believe. We have to believe in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. If you've ever had trouble explaining the gospel to anyone, take them to verses 12 and 13, especially 12. He gave the right. That implies that it wasn't something that just comes automatically with life. He gave the right to those who believed to what? Become. It's a process. To become is something that you are not originally. I didn't know Jesus before. I know Jesus now. My brother came home 
from camp in 1974. He explained to me that I, so far, did not know God. I did not take any time at all to argue with him because I knew that was true. And he says, but I can tell you the way. And the moment that we prayed together, I became, I started that process. I became a child of God. I had the right. And with that came so much. When we think of Christmas this year, it's easy to get wrapped up in the trees and the presents and the family and all the stuff that goes with that. And that's all great stuff. I love it. But, you know, really, John is saying this. The nativity, the incarnation. Wow. It happened. You now have the right. Something that Israel didn't even have in the Old Testament. That's an interesting thing because in the Old Testament, the Hebrews reference themselves as the children of God, but you never see themselves called, uh, calling God Father or uh, Abba as it does in the New Testament. They did not have that intimacy because it took the finishing work of Jesus on the cross for them to get to that place. I'd like to read to you from uh, 1 John, another book that John wrote, chapter 3. I get my pages to turn here. And in that, he says this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. Now, again, another temporal word, not before, but now, and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself because he is pure. We are the children of God. There's a distinction that John is making here. We have an inheritance before the Lord. It is a right that we have. He gave us the ability to have those things that comes with this family relationship with this father. Turn to Ephesians 1 to just get a brief rundown of what those things may be. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, right? He's adopted us into his family. We are his. The Holy Spirit seals us for our future redemption. All those things happen in an instant when we become part of his family. But it's still a process of becoming. We became, become the children of God. What an amazing statement. When we talk to other people about our Savior, when we tell them that he is the light, you have to communicate to them this is not something that is just available to you because you live here. Like Augustine said, you might be in a village with a teacher, but you have to go to class. You have to avail yourself of his educated, education. It's not enough that Jesus did what he did. We have to take that step of faith. And then he gives us three disclaimers as to what it's not. In verse 13, there are those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, it doesn't matter who your family is. You know, if you're Jewish, that doesn't matter. You can be the direct descendant of Moses, and you still need to take that step of faith. You can be a direct descendant of Abraham, and you still need to take that step of faith. As I was sharing my faith, my brother and I, with our family up at Eagle Grove, my aunts and uncles were there, and they wanted to know what had happened, why we were so different, you know, uh, what was going on in our lives. And so we started telling them in our very 
you know, uneducated way what we understood to have happened. And of course, what anybody does in that situation is they begin to measure their experience with your experience. And what we heard over and over again was from different people, well, I'm a Christian too. You are? Yeah. I go to church. You do? Yes. Well, I'm a good person. I've never hurt anybody. I don't have a, an affair. I've not murdered anyone. I don't steal. I pay my taxes. Fascinating. How come I've known you for 20-some years and you've never told me about Jesus? You've never said a thing about him. You've never told me that unless I accept him as my savior, I'm going to hell. Never once. Well, I grant you that you may know some verses that I don't know. No, what happened here is I know a savior you've never met. I know a savior you've never met. You have to become a child of God. It is the right he bestows upon you. It's not just an intellectual knowledge of Jesus. It's a step of faith. It is not something that just comes because you were born in North America or you're born in Israel or wherever. It comes because you understand what Jesus did and you accept, you choose to believe that that man, that historical figure that lived nearly 2,000 years ago was exactly the person that he said he was and that he brought with him the guarantee of eternal life and of faith and of love and of light. Do you want that? Do your family members want that? Do your friends, your neighbors? You're going home for Christmas. Many of you have been in church all your life. Does your family understand what you understand? Do they know what you know? I wish I could tell you that upon an explanation, a very clear, erudite explanation that we gave, not, my aunts and uncles all accepted Christ. Actually, what it did is it caused a division down the middle. I had one other cousin that was a believer, and they led their dad to the Lord. But for a long time, it was like, let's keep all the religious talk out in another room. We still want to have our place, our fun. We don't need all this upset. You know, we don't talk about religion and politics type of idea. But we kept trying. We must keep trying. We know the true light. And that's the most exciting thing in the world. In your hand chairs this morning, you should have received a little handout. I'll wrap up with this. We're not here too much longer. But it looks like this. And this is just kind of the way what John is talking about today. When we think about the incarnation, Christmas, when we think about that, uh, we have different thoughts on that. And I want you to do is take that piece of paper and I want you to fold it so that Christmas is on the side that says Earth, just like this, right? And then you'd have to flip it to see heaven. Now here's what happens in most of our homes. Are you with me? If you're like me, you really struggle with the craft items. It's okay. It's okay. Bethany, you want to go around and make sure everybody's got this down? Yeah, so if you're like me, you look at this and you say, well, yeah, I love Christmas. I did. I still do. Christmas is like great. We're putting up the tree. We've got people coming to visit or we're going to places. You know, we're going to get the food out. There's gifts. As little kids, we couldn't wait to open up those presents. My grandma had her nylons. You know, my big, huge grandma had nylons out there, which were full of oranges and little gifts and 
I mean, we lived like kings, we thought. It was the best part of the year. Open up that little footlocker with G.I. Joe in it, you know, before you had real hair. All those kind of things were really cool. That's this, right? That's an earthly view of the nativity. That's an earthly view of, of Christmas. There's nothing wrong with it. But it's not complete. Jesus says, I am the true light. Flip it over. What do you see? Oh, my goodness. There's some stuff happening at that incarnation in heaven. The angels are singing. And the shepherds got a brief glimpse of that, by the way. Uh, because of God's grace, he went out to some people who were in the marginalized people living in Bethlehem. And he said, hey, I got something for you. You scruffy, hardworking, probably smelly shepherds who are sitting here with a bunch of livestock. Why, out of all the people of Israel, I'm going to let you see this in all of its glory, he doesn't explain, but I'm going to open up and you're going to see the angels singing. And they're going to tell you about the birth of the Savior. The Messiah has come. The mystery of time is also written there, has been solved. They've been waiting for this and waiting for this. They've been through persecution after persecution in that intertestamental time between the closing of Malachi and the opening of Matthew. The truth has been pro proclaimed. The covenants are fulfilled. It's glorious. It's absolutely glorious. And 90% of people that you are going to celebrate Christmas with never understand this. They never see it. They might not reject it. They might not have a problem with it if you explain it. But they certainly don't look at Christmas and go, wow. Instead, they settle for this. Right? The presents and the stuff. And that's all good stuff. We, for most people, that's the height the measurement of joy of living life, right? Because it's the one time a year we get off work, we get out of school, and we're all together, and despite family fights and rude things that are said or noises that are made, we enjoy one another, mostly, right? We do it every year, but we're missing the picture. We're missing it. If I were to turn to Revelation chapter 22, 21, excuse me, we're going to see what's coming. And I probably Doug touched on this last week, but I'm going to hit it again. Revelation chapter 21. John has been describing the creation at the end of the uh, tribulation and all of the things going on there, the new heaven and the new earth. And he's talking about what it's going to look like. And he said there's going to be a new city, the city of Jerusalem. And he goes into tremendous detail as to what it's going to be built of, what it's going to look like. But this basically is our inheritance as believers. This is a place that we get to abide, to live. And he says, and I saw no temple in the city. This is verse 22. Um, is that 22? Yeah, 22. Why is that that there's no temple? But let's put it this way. There's no churches in the city. Why? I'm out of a job. <laughs> Pastor Fern is out of a job because God's there. I don't need an mediator between God and me. I don't need a prompter for worship. He's there in our presence. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Oh, man. God's going to change things. Whatever you're living through right now, I can just encourage you with this. Grab onto Christ. 
grab onto Jesus and hold on for dear life because it's not going to always be like this. It's going to change. He's going to recreate heaven and earth and we are going to be lit everywhere. Think about this. This is not a light emanating from central places. Because of my loss of an eye, I can't look at bright lights for very long. In fact, they, they just give me immense headaches. But lights always have a localized place. So all I have to do is look away from the light. This light is different. It's not a glare. It's not something that causes pain. It exists everywhere. Even in my office with no windows and no doors, or one door, I don't need extra light. I don't need a desk lamp. God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. His light will be everywhere. And the, and the imagery of the lamppost is used so often in the book of Revelation. And the lamp of this new Jerusalem is the lamb. Jesus himself. Just as he says in John 1.12 and before, I am the true light. He is also the lamp. And when that day comes, there is no darkness. There's nothing to fear. There's no reason to despair. There's nothing to be sad about. God is enthroned. This is what he had intended from the beginning when he created Adam and Eve. Once Adam made the right choices, he was going to get to eat of that tree of life, I'm pretty sure. And he's going to live forever. We won't need sleep. There won't be sadness, it says. And I love that. If you read down to the bottom, and it's kind of my, one of my favorite places, it says... Its gates will never be shut by day. Why do you shut a gate? Because you're afraid of what might come, right? It's unknown enemies or known enemies, but there are no enemies then. And there will be no night there. And then verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Because you see, you and I are going to be totally different people. I'm still going to be Dave. I'll probably still make horrible jokes. But I get to change. I get to become a new person in Christ. I get to be what he always desired for me to be. And so will you. And we will live in harmony. It's going to be the ultimate Christmas celebration, right? We're all going to be together. We're all going to be living in that new heaven and that new earth. Until then, we just have to walk with him in faith. The thing that makes the difference between on your chart the seeing the nativity as earthly bound versus heaven is that step of faith that's written on the left side of your paper. You have to act in faith so that you can become a child of God and get the right of salvation that Jesus came to bring with him. He is the true light. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I praise you for your love and your grace and your mercy. I ask, Lord, that you would help us to see by your light Father, may you dispel the lies and the darkness that the enemy puts in our heart. Uh, Satan does two things. He comes to blind us, according to 2 Corinthians 4, to the light. He doesn't want us to see that, nor the people that we love to see it. And he also deceives us, according to 2 Corinthians 11, by acting like an angel of light himself. Father, neither is true. And we hold on to your son, Jesus Christ, who is the true light. May we have a passion to spread that message as we go home to see our family and friends this Christmas. And may we rest in it. May we glory in it. And we're so thankful for it. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you would like to pray this morning, we want to remind you of the opportunity. You can come on up front and there will be people here to pray with you.